Human trafficking is one of the most toxic violations of a person, taking away elements of a person's core dignity. This problem is also connected to topics including drug abuse and post-traumatic stress disorder. On this episode of Through the Trees, we sit down with Carolyn McKinnon, the director of Streets Hope, a Denver organization committed to providing services for human trafficking victims and empowering our community to effectively address this problem. Special thanks also to the University of Denver's Human Trafficking Center, providing research and advocacy. Addiction treatment healthcare is vast territory, much of it having yet to be fully charted. It also is a field with some of the most passionate and interesting of clinicians. Each week, we walk the addiction treatment trails, learning from experts of all backgrounds and specialties. My name is Pat Failing, and I'm an addiction psychiatrist for CEDAR in the University of Colorado. You're listening to Through the Trees, the CEDAR Addiction Treatment Podcast. Well, this is Dr. Pat Failing, and I'm very happy to be on the Through the Trees podcast today with Carolyn McKinnon. We're talking about one of our more powerful and can be emotionally painful topics we've ever covered, which is the topic of human trafficking. And I think this is going to be very useful for patients and families to have some understanding about that, and especially other healthcare providers who are very often first responders for victims and trying to help people work through a, a very painful and life-threatening problem in their life. So, uh, Carolyn, thank you for sitting down with us on our show. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Tell us a little bit about human trafficking and how would we define it? Yes, absolutely. So human trafficking is uh, an issue that robs people of basic dignity and freedom. It's a, it's a very serious human rights violation. It exists on a spectrum, I would say, of choice at the one far end, which is what we experience most of the time in most areas of our life, and exploitation on the other end. Um, human trafficking is a severe form of human exploitation. The legal definition of human trafficking involves three words force, fraud, and coercion. So human trafficking is defined as the use of force, fraud, or coercion to compel a person to commit an act of labor or commercial sex. Now, if the person is under 18, the definition of the crime does not include, or the crime does not have to be um, perpetrated through the use of force, fraud, or coercion. So anyone under 18 who's engaged in an act of commercial sex or exploitative labor is deemed to be a trafficking victim. Okay. Yeah. And so globally, it's estimated that about 20.1 million people are currently being exploited. Um, the statistics are challenging to come by, I think, but the International Labor Organization and Polaris Project are just two of the organizations that work very hard to compile these numbers. And so those are, are based on, on a lot of different things, but that's the best guess we have right now. Of those 20 million people, approximately 55% of those are women, 45% are men, 
again, I just caution everyone to not assume that that's a set in stone uh, number, but you know, it's likely to be fairly equal numbers between men and women. Okay. And again, I understand I'm not taking into account non-binary people who are also highly vulnerable to being trafficked. Um, the International Labor Organization still uses that binary um, gender definition sure. to describe the problem. It is worth about $150 billion a year globally, human trafficking, um, as a criminal enterprise. So it's very lucrative. $99 billion of those dollars are made in the commercial sex industry. And the rest are made in labor trafficking. Another really important thing to understand, and um, I always want to say that, you know, we definitely consider the issue of children being trafficked an enormous problem, but 75% of victims are actually adults. The media tends to sensationalize this around children, and many people believe that trafficking is only children, and it's not. About 25% of victims are children. Okay. Yeah. Okay, so about a, about a quarter are children or minors, the rest are adults. Yes. And the, does that, is there a, 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 a partition of adults? Are there people who are trafficked in the elderly as well? Um, you know, it's possible. I don't, I, it's not really something that's talked about. Um, when we talk about trafficking victims, we talk about vulnerabilities and what causes vulnerabilities in different populations. And so um, age certainly could be a vulnerability. It would probably skew more towards the younger age um, rather sure. than elder um, age because um, older people might not be as able to work in the same way that younger people are. Sure. So, And since we're talking about a form of work, when we talk about human trafficking, um, older people might not be as valuable to a trafficker. Do you have any data of the 20.1 estimated or 20.1 million estimated people how that is divided between labor and sex work? Yeah, so it's approximately 65% uh, labor, 45% sex. Or 35%. Sex, Excuse or, me, 35% or, sex. Yeah. Okay. Getting my numbers wrong. Okay. Yeah. But it, so interesting. So 2 thirds is labor, the other third would be sex work. Yes, but the sex work is much more lucrative okay. to traffickers. Okay. So it's very important to, to realize and remember that. Okay. Yeah. Tell us a, a little bit about uh, the work that you have done here in Streets Hope and the organization. So Streets Hope is actually um, a direct service provider for human trafficking victims. Streets Hope started in 2004 um, as an outreach project to women engaged in the sex trade on East Colfax Avenue in Denver. Um, over time, it grew into a more robust program um, that involved a residential safe house, case management, and clinical um, interventions, I, I guess I would say. And over about 10 years, 10, 12 years, um, the program served maybe 300 adult women um, in 2017, the organization decided to sort of take a look internally and determine if we were actually serving the community in the best possible way. We decided that um, there was actually a lot of unmet need in the community that we were not getting to by having that model that only allowed us to serve a very few women at a time. 
So the organization decided that it was important to serve all victims of human trafficking and exploitation, and that we could do that more um, effectively in a community-based model. And so we've switched over to that type of a model in the last year. And in the last year, we've served over 300 people in the Denver area who have experienced exploitation. So we feel um, strongly that we have, by changing our model and by going into other community organizations where we suspect trafficking victims could be invisibly um, served, I guess I would say, that we can um, address this problem in a much more head-on way and actually educate the community a lot more as well. And we're finding that to be the truth. Sure. Definitely. So the, am I hearing you right that in the last couple years, you have met as much of a need as the prior decade combined? Yes. Or the, okay. In the last year. Okay, in the last year. Okay, so you guys have really magnified your presence. We really have. And we feel really great about that. And um, like I said, one of the things that's very important to understand about um, about human trafficking and human trafficking victims is that victims are very reluctant to come forward and self-identify as human trafficking victims. Um, they There's so much shame and stigma attached to this type of exploitation, usually because of the relationship that they have with their trafficker. And so um, people don't want to come forward. And so by um, being out on the street, being out in other community organizations, we found that by just offering what we have, um, which is a certain type of approach that's very trauma-informed um, to people's experience without asking them directly what their experience is. We're finding that people are able to come to us and say, no, this is a real thing for me. This has happened to me. You know, we've worked hard to educate, like I said, other community organizations, including domestic violence shelters, um, medical facilities, um, community health centers, day shelters, things like housing programs, jobs programs, um, to the idea that they could be serving this population without knowing it. And that it's the type of trauma and the type of harm that has been done to trafficking victims is is so unique and, and so tough that um, it really is important for people to understand what they're actually um, trying to help people work with. Sure. Can you tell us a little bit of some of the potential ways that somebody may fall into victim as in the world of human trafficking, how it tends to go? Yes. So um, there are a few different scenarios that are fairly common. If we're talking about labor trafficking, um, one thing that happens is somebody might see Um, perhaps someone from another country might see an ad online. Um, They might be looking for a better life for themselves or their family and and looking for opportunities that they can't find in their home country. And so they'll see an ad online that would offer them education perhaps or a job that's very well paying. And they might um, try to get to this country in order to take advantage of that. They could or they could already be here on a student visa or a tourist visa. They or or even a work visa, because they have a visa. Because that, in and of itself, having that document or a document like that creates a vulnerability. That creates a possible point of exploitation for a trafficker, because if a trafficker can get a hold of someone's documents, legal documents, 
they have control of that person. Mm, okay. Right? So they might come looking for work. Um, they could be met by a trafficker who is supposedly going to be their employer. That person could take their documents and then um, basically place them in um, a sort a form of debt bondage or something else that would um, involve threats to their family, um, saying that they owe money. Um, if they don't speak the language or they aren't familiar with cultural norms, they, they're in a very vulnerable position. And then if the person has their documents, it's even worse. So that's one way. Another way we see is for kids on the street, homeless youth, um, incredibly vulnerable population um, for a lot of different reasons. Um, they may be on the street because they've run away from abuse in their home or an abuse, abusive foster care situation. Um, they may be um, struggling with a gender identity issue that their families are not accepting of. They could have mental health issues or substance use issues. So they're on the street. And, and we know that um, kids on the street are approached by traffickers usually within a very, very short time of being on the street. And kids are used to relying on adults for money and food and clothing and shelter. And so if an adult approaches a, ch a kid on the street and says, hey, I'll buy a McDonald's meal, you look hungry. Um, do you need a place to sleep tonight? Hey, I've got a job, you can earn 20 bucks an hour if you'll work for me. That creates a lot of opportunity for people to exploit homeless youth as well. As far as sex trafficking goes, I would say that a, a very common way that people are exploited into sex trafficking is through an intimate relationship. It could be um, a family member who says, has already been role modeling um, commercial sex um, to a child and then tells the child it's their turn. They need to go out and start earning money for the family or the young adult. It could be a boyfriend, a girlfriend, a husband, a wife who, you know, is in a, they're in a, a potentially abusive relationship already, emotionally abusive. Um, and they're told that they have to go earn money this way. Or there's also, you know, more of a grooming, you know, sort of love relationship type of thing that happens to people often too. So people think this is their boyfriend and they think this is normal, that their boyfriend would ask them to go out and engage in in sex with other people to to give them money okay so people almost it, people have stockholm syndrome essentially a lot of the times okay in those types of relationships and and then so if it sounds like a fair amount of the time the the victim they know the people in terms of the people yes. that are bridging them into trafficking yes they do the, um 90 percent of the time people are known the traffickers are known to their victims. Fewer than 10% of victims are uh, trafficked by strangers. And that's a, that's a study that was done um, a few years ago by Covenant House in New York. So, and I think over time that study has stayed, the, the results of that have stayed pretty robust with, in terms of the other research that's being done. Okay. It's just a very common phenomenon that this is, this is an, people are exploited by people that they know. Okay, so so very fascinating. So the so you gave three uh, three distinct examples. You, you mentioned trafficking via immigration. Yes. Somebody comes for work that they they imagine is going to be a better life, and it turns out to be a, a fraudulent or a coercive situation. We've got the world of homeless, specifically youths, who need help, 
and they start to build a relationship with somebody, but then they get bridged into work in some way. Mm -hmm. And then we've got uh, personal relationships, either mm -hmm. into either romantic relationships or something where then it starts to become the norm and then specifically with sex work. Yeah. I know sometimes we hear things or see things in the media about sex trafficking and a lot of it involves relocation. Mm -hmm. Somebody might move to a different, be moved to a different state or out of the country. The, how much, how often does that happen? It does happen. It does happen. And it really depends on the situation. If there's, um, it, it depends on how organized the traffickers are. So traffickers, you know, range from less organized to more organized. Um, a less organized trafficker would be a, a family member or an intimate partner. So it's, you know, it's not a criminal enterprise. It's just a relationship, essentially, all the way to more organized, which could involve a cartel or some other organized crime structure, I guess. Sure. Okay. So it really depends. I think it's fair to say that if someone has been trafficked um, by a cartel, um, that their lives could remain in danger for a long time and that they might have to move away or be moved away from the location where they were trafficked or where a cartel might have access to, to information about where they are. But we also know that individuals can be very dangerous to their victims as well. And I know you, uh, you mentioned the, the component of a, uh, like a Stockholm syndrome. And yes. I, I imagine that would happen, especially if somebody got moved away from their family yes. by the perpetrator, but they had one relationship, which might have been that initial perpetrator, and they feel an attachment um, yes. Even though there's, they might be very far away from loved ones, they might be quite alone. Yes, absolutely. People are very attached. And the control tactics that are used, um, whether it's in labor trafficking or sex trafficking or similar, um, they often involve, like I said, there can be grooming. So there's a, a period of time where it appears that the relationship is going to be something positive and good. Usually people that are vulnerable to trafficking are people who are, for whatever reason, um, trying to find a better life for themselves, whether it's through political oppression, you know, changing climate conditions in their home country, um, lack of economic opportunity here in the U.S., um, you know, systemic racism, sexism, gender bias, um, you know, intergenerational trauma and poverty, all of those things are factors that, that make people vulnerable to being trafficked. And so traffickers, you know, know how to exploit those vulnerabilities to gain control over people and to build these relationships. So there can be a grooming period where there's, it, it seems like closeness is being developed or someone's getting the kind of love and affection that they maybe never got in their home, or they're getting um, the promise of a job or whatever the promise is, you know, whether it's love or a job, money, way to save their kids or have a better life for their kids, that happens first. And then there's usually a phase where, um, just like with other types of grooming, um, where the violence begins and the threats begin and the fear starts to become instilled. And so whether people are threatened with blackmail, you know, using photographs that have been taken, um, whether they're threatened with violence to their friends and family, um, threatened with deportation, threatened to be turned over to the police, um, you know, whatever the threat is, however they, however the vulnerability can be exploited, you know, whether it's through documents, legal documents, um, giving legal status to somebody, or 
or through an emotional vulnerability, um, that will start to happen. And by then, you know, things have gotten so twisted up that people, it's hard for people to break away. They're terrified. And other tactics that are used are isolation, monitoring, starvation, um, lack of access to basic needs, repeated beatings, lack of medical attention to chronic or acute injuries. Um, substance use is used as, a, as a, a method of control, even though substance use can also be a vulnerability that could cause someone to allow, you know, to be exploited. And substance use can also be a method of control. And traffickers will often use substances to gain compliance from their victims. Uh, Carolyn, do you have any statistics about that? Like how many people who are victims or survivors struggle with addiction? I would say I don't have a statistic about it, but I would tell you it's a very high number. It's a very, it, high. it really is yeah. a high number. Yeah. And you can understand why if you take, if you take out the idea that someone might have been, had a substance use issue um, to begin with, and if you just think about what their experience is while being trafficked, um, how terrifying, physically painful, exhausting, you know, just psychologically destructive an experience this is, you can see why why someone might welcome like substance a, yeah, use. Yeah, or a numbing or an escape. Exactly. A way then, to dissociate from your yeah. body, a way to dissociate from your emotions, a way to escape the reality of what's happening to you. Um, it's easy to understand sure. why, this hap- why people um, walk out of these situations with a substance use issue. So, and I imagine it serves, it. the substance use very often can perpetuate staying in the in a victim position mm-hmm. because you both, it is a, there's a numbing component, so it helps people cope with their reality. But then there's also, of course, the dependency component and then the, the perpetrator or whoever's involved could be regulating or could be, managing the access to heroin or alcohol where the person doesn't have doesn't have a lot of choices they have to keep working in the arrangement absolutely and they're, there's they're stuck. there's they're, no question that that happens and um, you can even sometimes see it happening you know we do street outreach if you spend enough time in certain spots in the city you can see um, some of these commercial sex transactions occurring with pimps and um, you can see when the um, the drugs are brought in you know to the victims essentially sure you yeah. know and then they go off to the next client now I know uh, you do lecturing and teaching for healthcare different professionals and things like that um, what do we tend to see of, of the the interface between healthcare and the world of sex trafficking or human trafficking in general? Yeah, so I think it's really important for healthcare providers to become educated about this issue. And I think it's happening around the city much more than even just a few years ago, I think for a few different reasons. One, the Colorado Human Trafficking Council has taken a, a strong stance on this and has developed a training um, that is being done around the city. I'm one of the trainers and um, we go as many places as we can to do these trainings to as many different types of community members as we can get to, um, to spread the word, to create a shared vocabulary and to um, build awareness in the community. 
because there has to be a community response to this. However, healthcare providers are often going to be on the front lines, a first person to see a trafficking victim. Trafficking victims may be seen by a healthcare provider multiple times before they're ever identified as a trafficking victim, if in fact they ever are identified in a healthcare setting. There's a lot of progress to be made in this area. Those points of contact that might be emergency room? Emergency or? room, um, uh, pediatric clinics. I mean, it could be any a community health center. You know, it could be anything. It could be a woman bringing her children in to a community health center. You know, a, a doctor or nurse might have a suspicion that that woman is being trafficked if she's coming in multiple times repeatedly for sexually transmitted diseases. Okay. But she continues to bring her kids in to be seen, so there's a relationship there. You know, so it's not just as easy as picking up the phone and calling law enforcement necessarily. So I think there's, and it's a complicated response that needs to happen because it's not just about calling law enforcement into a situation. Um, a lot of times trafficking victims are very reluctant to talk to law enforcement. Um, and so that it's a relation, it's about building relationships with a victim or a suspected victim. Um, it's about learning what the indicators are and it's about having an, an organizational response that's going to be effective and impactful. What is the organizational response? Um, in any given setting, and how can the providers be part of the culture shift in creating that response? Sure. Um, one of the things I always recommend is um, there's an amazing network of public health professionals called HEAL, H-E-A-L, um, who are working all over the world on this issue from a public health perspective. And they have just so much research and everything else coming out for medical providers to take advantage of to build these organizational responses. Sure. So is uh, HEAL, is that for our listeners of this podcast, is that uh, is there a, like a website or a directory that mm -hmm. would, could look at So their, it's HEAL Network, H-E-A-L Network, Okay. all caps. And um, there is a website and there is, you can join and um, as a service provider and, you know, gain access to their listserv, which is just very active. And there, like I said, it's an international community of of people, healthcare providers um, working on this issue with lots of different um, protocols and studies and suggestions and trainings and things like that. So it's I think it's really valuable for people working in healthcare. Sure. Experience the compassionate care of Cedar, the Center for Dependency, Addiction, and Rehabilitation. Located at the University of Colorado Hospital, we manage complex health needs in addition to addiction. To learn more, visit cedarcolorado.org. You mentioned the concept of building a shared vocabulary. Mm -hmm. um, tell me a little bit about that. What, yeah, do, you, so what I think, do you mean? So I think that's something that the Colorado Human Trafficking Council has really worked on and is working on. And I think it's very important because there does have to be a community response to this issue. The idea would be that the community understands the basic concepts about human trafficking, what it is, um, what it looks like, who's involved, you know, that anyone could be involved. It could be anyone. It's not just sort of the things we see on the media, as we already discussed, you know, it's, it's um, not just children. Um, the idea that human trafficking is not the same as smuggling. That's a very important concept because a lot of people conflate those two things. 
it's basically myth busting. It's, it's taking out the sensationalized ideas that people have and replacing them with the, the realities of sure, what this okay. looks like sure. in our community. So uh, what would be some examples of myths that don't see, do not seem to be true? Yeah, the myth, one of the myths is the myth of that this is a crime involving only children. Okay. As we said earlier, 75% of victims are adults, 25% are children. Another myth would be that it's always a crime involving, that it's a crime of smuggling, that it somehow involves people coming across borders. That is not the case. Smuggling is a crime against a border. Trafficking is a crime against a person. Okay. Smuggling can turn into trafficking. It's possible. But smuggling in and of itself is not human trafficking. Another myth is that victims of human trafficking are brought here from other countries. The U.S. is a destination and a source of human tra- for human trafficking victims. Most human trafficking victims in the United States are U.S. citizens. So it is occurring here in our community. It is not just people working in nail salons or massage parlors, you know, Chinese restaurants, to name some of the stereotypes. It's people working in the roofing and construction industry. It's people working on the streets. It's, it's people all over our city in many, many ways being exploited, whether they're homeless and being exploited so that they can survive or whether they're working in other areas too. So those are some of the myths that I think are, are important for people to understand. And also that it's not just sex trafficking, that human trafficking involves uh, labor as well, other forms of labor, not just sex. Sure. Can you tell us, I know you, you mentioned some uh, common signs that you might see, you mentioned like sexually transmitted diseases or repeated STDs sure. in healthcare. Sure. Are, are there any kind of warning signs that somebody would be a victim of labor trafficking? So I think labor trafficking, the things that people would look for, some of them would be the same. Um, it could be someone who doesn't seem to be in control of their documents coming into a healthcare setting. So they might have a someone there translating for them. They're not allowed to speak. Their demeanor might be very subdued or they would seem like to be in psychological distress. They might look malnourished. They might seem very unfamiliar with where they even are, like what city they're in, or you know, just seem not to know. Sure. So, so like, like a disorientation. Yeah. And then, and also, and, and I know you had mentioned that before, like a food deprivation and using food as a means of control. Yeah. So somebody who seems to be malnourished, um, poor dental hygiene, or you know, maybe like severe problems, you know, with their teeth, Um, just anything that would signify a lack of medical care. Again, someone else who seems to have control of them, speaking for them, explaining things for them, translating for them. Yeah. Sure. Okay. Yeah. Um, Unhealed, you know, different bruising at different stages. So like it could be repeated injuries that are healing at different rates. Be another one, you know, for sex trafficking victims, we say, um, you know, there can be tattoos, um, burns, scarring um, that are sort of branding um, signs. Other things could be, you know, loss of hair, bald patches, either from um, abuse or malnutrition. Sure. Do you have any any data on how many people pass away? 
while they're victims of sex trafficking or, or any sort of trafficking? This is a very hard question. I don't think there is good data because these are people that might disappear, that might never have had a, a firm identity or a firm grasp in our society in the first place. I, I just read an article that um, children of color that go missing are not investigated at the same rate that white children are investigated. So all of these things come together yeah. to so make the, it so really the, challenging. But the public health components would be very hard to track. Yes. And and how many, I mean, we, we talk a lot, even on this podcast, we talk a lot about overdose and how many people were, they, they may have been in a human trafficking situation, but we would never know. Right. And it, it just got right. identified as a drug-related death. Right, exactly. And so it'd be very, we really wouldn't know. I think that's very, very true. It's a, another thing that I've heard and learned about is how hard it is to use best practices with this population. Like, for example, a, a medical best practice would be follow-up visit, right? Um, people are often very traumatized in medical settings. They are very fearful and uncomfortable. And so to bring somebody who has this type of trauma into a medical setting and then ask them to come for a follow-up visit, it's highly unlikely that you would ever see them again. Sure. So yeah. it's very hard to engage in you know, what we know are, are good practices yeah. with this population because of the trauma. So we, uh, in any sort of dedicated addiction care, we focus on these themes of meeting people where they're at, yes. uh, like uh, building a relationship, uh, motivational approaches, also things like harm reduction. Yes. And are, are you using some of the similar strategies? Yes. We very much focus on a harm. We take a harm reductive approach to our work, for sure. We always want to meet people where they are. We ask people what they need. Um, we don't tell them what we're going to do for them. We ask them what they need. We ask them how we can help them be safe. Um, we always work in that way with people. We never ask people what their stories are um, or to explain to us how they got here. We just ask what they need and how can we help. And we feel that that's you know, a very effective and impactful approach. And we do work on building relationships. People come in broken with no trust, no ability to form trusting relationships. And we um, have a very um, person-centered type of um case management we our, our case managers work very closely with people they role model they go out with them they you know we don't uh, we don't give somebody a task and say go out and take care of this we say how can we help you do this how can we do this together so we're very focused on building that trusting relationship with people sure absolutely we we very much believe in that approach okay. we and we say that our program is um it's individualized. It's not a one-size-fits-all program because everyone comes in with different needs, and we, our job is to f help them identify their needs and then empower them to go from there. Sure. How many of the the people that you work with come via word of mouth? How many is that the the, the kind of the biggest way that people find you? Not well. It probably is the biggest way. Uh, it's really interesting. We get a lot of people that self-refer to our program. We also get people that refer, that are referred from, um, you know, the probation or parole or law enforcement, like the FBI, um, also refers people to us. But I would say that we do have a lot of people that come to us because they've heard about us. 
through whatever informal networks they might hear. Hmm. And yeah. that's always a great way to get people, um, to get people into our program, we think. I know you, you mentioned law enforcement. Do you have collaboration with law enforcement in the Denver area? Because this is, you mentioned the criminality component yes. and cartels and... Yes. Um, yes, we do. There's another... Um, so there is a, a, a collaborative grant right now between um, law enforcement in Denver and another service provider um, where they're working together to hopefully connect victims to law enforcement um, with the idea of, of increasing prosecutions as well as serving victims a little bit differently. We don't, we don't work quite in that way, but we, of course, always want to collaborate with law enforcement when our clients want to work with law enforcement. But that's our barrier right there. It, or not barrier, but that's our guardrail, I guess I would say. Sure. We will only um, contact law enforcement if our clients wish to be involved with sure. law enforcement. Well, yeah, once again, the pa- patient-centered approach. I mean, where they're, yes. they're leading you in terms of how you can be helpful. Absolutely. And to promote safety and trust. And Absolutely. Our like whole that. program is based around that idea. Yeah. We don't have any pre-conditioned, you know, set of interventions, I guess I would say, that we would ask somebody to engage in with us. Sure. Okay. Carolyn, this has been very informative and very good. Are there other things that, that you'd really like our listeners to know about the topic of human trafficking and things that you think are really important? I would say that one of the most important things is to for people to be very compassionate. I think people right now are um, tense and worried about homelessness and drug use and things like that in our community with good reason. But I think that people need to understand that they may not grasp the complexity of a person's situation and they may not see everything that they think they're seeing. They, they may, there may be many unseen factors at work. Someone could be being trafficked that a person might think is, is homeless or just on the street or begging or for whatever reason. And so I just, we just really encourage people to be compassionate and non-judgmental, and to believe the idea that human trafficking is a very real problem here in our community. Belief in this is a huge thing. And that's a big part of building awareness in our community is people accepting that this is actually happening right here on our streets, in our neighborhoods every day. So we really hope that people will believe will learn more, educate themselves, not just the sensationalized stuff in the media, but, you know, really go to some of the better um, places online and and really understand what the problem is and then be compassionate, care about people, support, support service providers like us. Um, That's what we hope for. I'm sure it starts by having a a grasp of the real scope of the problem. Yes. And... You mentioned like in in Denver, in the Denver metro area, do you have any estimates on how many people may be a victim today? All I can tell you is the numbers that we've seen in the last year. Just the number of people that are coming through your doors. Exactly. Um, That's all I can say. I can tell you that I think this last year, the Department of Labor um, filed, or I think around 1,500 wage theft cases were filed with the Department of Labor 
Um, so that could be an indicator about labor trafficking, too. Oh, interesting. Okay. Um, and I might be a little off on that, but there's some really interesting information. And the legislature last session just passed a wage theft law um, designed to address um, labor exploitation. So people are very aware of it occurring here in Colorado. Yeah. I think sex trafficking, the numbers are just harder to come by. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Well, uh, very good. So th- I think this has been very informative. And um, once again, this is uh, Pat Failing uh, sitting down uh, with the uh, University of Colorado, the Through the Trees podcast. I was really happy to sit down today with Carolyn McKinnon, the executive director of Streets Hope and focusing on human trafficking and helping to make a difference in our community. Very wonderful. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Through the Trees, the Cedar Addiction Treatment Podcast. Please visit cedarcolorado.org for a wide array of educational content about the disease of addiction and the science of recovery. If you or a loved one are considering Cedar and the University of Colorado Hospital for treatment, please speak with our admissions team at 720-848-3000. Cedar the Center for Dependency, Addiction, and Rehabilitation, helping people build a life of recovery. 